This is High Stakes from Gerard Phillips, Kate, and Hancock. Welcome back to High Stakes. I'm David Schifrin and uh, having a great conversation today with Carol Cardin, Managing Principal of Valuation Services at our good friends, uh, PYA. And so as the COVID-19 situation has continued to evolve, we're talking to a lot of our friends and partners across the industry to understand how this pandemic is affecting healthcare providers in many different areas. And so uh, in, in this conversation, Carol and I are going to talk a bit about physician compensation, some of the trends that she's seen, and uh, what this might mean for the industry in the long run. So Carol, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I appreciate the opportunity, David. Glad to be here. So let's just set the stage, uh, make sure everybody's on the same page here. But what do the CMS waivers mean for physician compensation? Uh, the government's been coming out with a lot of new information and and uh, rules around that area. So just kind of explain what the landscape looks like today. Okay, happy to do that. Um, let me start by giving the typical caveat that I'm not a healthcare attorney. But as I understand it, in past emergencies, such as hurricanes, at times, Um, Health and Human Services has offered the opportunity for individual stark waivers, meaning that the health system, if they wanted to veer away or create some type of arrangement that was not compliant with stark, they had to go request permission. In this instance, they've actually done a blanket waiver of stark, meaning that a health system can enter into or modify an existing arrangement in a manner that normally would not comply with the stark regulations as long as those efforts are as a result of their um, desire to try to address the COVID-19 pandemic. It gives the health systems much uh, more flexibility and the ability to be more nimble. Um, And what that means for them to be able to either modify or enter into arrangements that don't comply with Stark is that one of the primary requirements of Stark is that anytime there's payments between a hospital and a referral source, such as a physician, those remunerations or monies have to be exchanged at fair market value. So what they've done with this blanket waiver is given the hospitals the leeway and the freedom to go outside of fair market value as long as they're doing it to address the pandemic specifically. Uh, One of the things, and I would encourage anyone who's listening to this with the health system, if you haven't read the blanket waiver, to read it. Unlike most government documents, it's only six or seven pages long, so it's not you know, horrendously cumbersome to read, but it also includes at the end of it a list of 17 or 18 examples of types of ways that hospitals might modify agreements under this blanket waiver. The other thing that I would point out to any of our health system clients who are looking to take advantage of the Stark blanket waiver is that there's language in it that specifically addresses or directs health systems to keep records of this. Now, it doesn't tell you what the record has to look like necessarily, but it does have language in it that says the parties utilizing the blanket waivers must make records relating to the use of the blanket waivers and then goes on to say we encourage parties to develop and maintain records in a timely manner. And I think that does two things. One is if somewhere down the road the hospital gets challenged on any modification or new arrangement that they entered into, they would have documented contemporaneously with their decision what their rationale was. And so that's always a wise thing to do because things are very chaotic right now. A lot of things are changing simultaneously. 
six months or a year from now, it might be hard to remember exactly what your thought process was in the midst of this. So one thing I will say is we published a, a checklist about a week ago to help hospitals kind of think through the criteria that's out on our website and free for anyone, if that would be helpful for them to kind of think through what their business case is for changing uh, an arrangement. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just keeping everything going in real time. I mean, we think about that in communications too, because I mean, it's keeping a diary simply, when you look back and things in retrospect may not understand, or as you said, remember what things looked like. And so to be able to say, okay, in this moment of pressure, here's where we were and here's why this decision was made. Right. Uh, so you talked about having that record and, and being able to kind of show the case. You also talked about things having to be related directly to responding to COVID-19. And again, with the caveat that you're not giving specific legal or regulatory advice here, are there any other pitfalls to be aware of uh, with these changes, whether that's kind of around the, the regulatory scenario or even in terms of like what could be expected in a communications or publicity uh, area? Yeah, I think from a regulatory and legal standpoint, the main risks are that you do something that ultimately down the road gets you tripped up. And the and the only thing you can do right now is be true to your intent that you are doing it in response to COVID-19 and document it as such. There's not really much else that can be done, I think, at this point to help manage that risk. I think from a communications and publicity standpoint, um, it's an opportunity for health systems to garner some goodwill in the community and with their medical staff by showing that, you know, they're willing to kind of go outside the bounds of what would be normal protocol, partially to address their own needs. But in, in some instances, the changes that are permitted under the Stark waiver would be things just to help physicians in the community. For example, if, if a hospital has a medical office building and they have physicians renting in it, one of the things they could do is choose to waive the rent for a specified period of time. And this blanket waiver, I don't think I mentioned this, but it's retroactive to March 1st and runs through whenever this national emergency and health emergency ends, so to be determined. But they could choose to waive rent in medical office buildings as a, just a gesture of goodwill towards their medical staff to recognize that a, a lot of people are gonna be hurting financially during this. So I think there are some opportunities from a communications and publicity standpoint, if a health system is in the financial position to do some of these things. Taking what you're just discussing uh, and and knowing that some systems may be in a financial position to sort of essentially give more and, and others are not, what are some of the things that can be done now to help balance all those pressures of, of helping the physicians while also maintaining as much financial stability at the organization? going forward? When we think about it, we kind of we kind of put the physicians in two different buckets. What can you do for your employed physicians to help them kind of weather the storm? And, and for the employed physicians, the primary issue is for the ones who do a lot of elective procedures, which have been deferred for the time being. For the community physicians, there are a different set of considerations to be made. That's where you get into things like can you redeploy them in an area that you need them in the hospital and pay them for those services? Similarly, you know, the example I gave about forgiving rent in the medical office building for a few months, something else you could do for your community physicians. Could you lease some of their nursing or clinical staff, use them in the hospital where you have shortages, relieve them of some of the salary costs while their volumes are down? On the employed physician side, 
where we see the primary issue is going to be for those surgeons and procedural specialists who have compensation models that are productivity-based. So some of the things that we've seen health systems do is set put them on a set base for a short period of time until this kind of runs its course. Now, we recommend when you do that for both the financial stability of the hospital as well as trying to maintain when this is all said and done, a compensation amount to the physician that's reasonable, that the hospital not necessarily set them at their maximum earning capacity, but perhaps you guarantee their base and don't make it um, driven by or impacted by their level of work RVUs, or you set them at some amount similar to median compensation as published in one of the compensation surveys, something that just kind of stabilizes them enough to get them through this uh, time period. But on the back end of this, when elective procedures start back, their volume is likely to be extremely high. So you don't want to pay them too high on the front end and then end up, in essence, double paying them for the same service on the back end. So Carol, let's look, start looking a little bit further out. And, and there's, we're still right in the thick of the crisis, but this is going to have long-term implications. So what are some of the opportunities as we come out of this for a forward-thinking organization to kind of take this really tough moment and prepare for a successful reemergence. You know, one of the things that one of our clients has already reached out to us to do, which I thought was a very creative and relatively low-cost thing for them to do, this is one of the large national health systems, and they've asked us to come in and do some education for their medical staff. So these are the community physicians who serve at their hospitals, not their employed physicians, but to help them understand and try to navigate, in particular, the payroll protection program that was included in the CARES Act. This is just something they're doing as an an element of goodwill, if you will, towards their medical staff to help them figure out how to access some of these funds as small businesses that will help them kind of sustain themselves through this. But the other thing, I think at this point, you know, we're all in this together, literally in the entire world right now. And so, The only thing that I think hospitals really can do right now is just be honest and open in their communications and keep the medical staff informed as best they can as to what the hospital's needs are, where they might plug in, what are some of the options that the hospital might be able to consider to help them. And I think when we come out on the other side of this, if if you've handled that well from the communications standpoint and to the extent you can, financially assist in some way, that's going to garner a lot of loyalty on the back end with their physician community. So pull out your crystal ball. And uh, well, that's the question that everybody wants to ask, right? Is what <laughs> what do you think this means in the long run for the physician employer dynamic? I suspect that, you know, over the last eight to 10 years, and particularly more so the, the earlier five to six year time frame of that, we saw a lot of physician employment by health systems. A lot of that was driven at the time by some changes that CMS was proposing in the Medicare physician fee schedule, pretty draconian cuts. And the physicians just, I think, grew weary of having that huge financial risk hanging over their head every single year that kind of threw in the towel and said, I just want to practice medicine. Let somebody else worry about that. And I think what this will likely spur is some physicians who have been more um, strongly independent 
being tired of this kind of risk and stress in addition to this risk and stress of being a practicing physician in the first place. So I think we will see another wave of physician employment and acquisition. And that may not all happen at the hospital level or the health system level now. There's a lot of private equity money that's in healthcare now. So that's a game changer. There's a lot of insurers who have gotten into the physician employment business. So I think for those physicians who this is kind of the last straw and they just don't want to deal with the financial risk of being the business owner, they will have a fair number of suitors (laughs) to consider and it'll be a matter of them, you know, figuring out what works for them from a cultural standpoint, who they really want to be employed by. But I suspect that we will see some a new wave of physician employment following this. Great. Well, Carol Cardin, Managing Principal Evaluation Services and our good friends over at PYA, thanks for your time. Um, it's PYAPC.com for more information about how they can help you. Um, where else should people go to find you? If they go on the the landing page for the firm, there's a COVID hub and there's a lot of thought leadership pieces on different elements, telehealth being one that's become, you know, kind of in the forefront now, because that's another way to expand your physician resources. Um, There's a couple of articles that are comp related that I referred to, as well as the checklist that I referred to. All that's out there available for anybody that wants it. We've also done a few webinars at this point on different parts of the CARES Act. Um, those are out there free for anybody who wants to listen to them as well. Great. Thanks again for your time, Carol. This has been really uh, informative and and uh, and useful. And I just uh, hope all is well with you and good luck through this time. Thanks, David. Same to you. Take care.